passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I remember coming back, Kevin Dunn, our executive producer, told me, JR, we're coming back to you guys, and you need to let everybody know the update on Owen. And I said, uh, I don't know what the update is. Nobody's told me. So in the chaos, the folks in the back that were supposed to tell me at the gorilla position what was going on was off the headset doing other stuff, which I understand. But we didn't have the information. So he told me, he said, well, he's dead. And you're back in 10, 9. Here at, uh, in Kansas City, uh, tragedy befell the World Wrestling Federation and all of us. Owen Hart was uh, set to make an entrance from the ceiling and uh, he fell from the ceiling. And I have the unfortunate responsibility to let everyone know that Owen Hart has died. Owen Hart has tragically died from that accident here tonight. Our top story at 11, a former World Wrestling Federation champ is dead tonight. Once king of the ring, Owen Hart fell from the ceiling during an event in Kansas City. The audience at first thought it was a stunt. Millions of fans were tuned in on pay-per-view TV. The investigation into Owen Hart's death continues. He was a 13-year veteran of the ring and leaves behind a son six, a daughter four. So, Mike, pretty tragic for the wrestling world. The World Wrestling Federation plans to go on with tonight's live match in St. Louis despite last night's accident that claimed the life of veteran wrestler Owen Hart. We're saddened by this tragic loss and uh, right now there are no answers. There is an ongoing investigation and um, we don't have any answers as to how this happened yet. Where were you on May 23rd, 1999? It's a question you've likely asked and been asked over the past 20 years if you're a follower of professional wrestling. It was just another pay-per-view for the thriving then World Wrestling Federation, a company that had reversed course in its battle with World Championship Wrestling a year prior and was distancing themselves with each ensuing month. By May of 1999, business was booming and the Over the Edge show was going to be another success in a long line of them. At 8.41 p.m. Eastern, the show took a dark turn as the Kemper Arena crowd witnessed the biggest story in professional wrestling history, as veteran Owen Hart descended from the rafters, free-falling into the ring in a stunt that would turn out to be fatal. This is Owen Hart's final day of post-profile.
Well, the blue blazer was somebody that I was a long time ago, about 10 years ago, and when I was young and silly. And uh, now, uh, you know, I retired, and that was it. I left it at that, and, and these allegations kept coming that I was a blue blazer. But uh, yet I couldn't be two places at one time. Owen Hart was there, and all of a sudden this blue blazer would jump in and jump someone. Uh, I don't know who the blue blazer is. Uh, someone said it was a guy in Winnipeg, Jeff McGuinney. I don't know. Uh, I really don't know who it is, but uh, obviously it's not me. Owen Hart arrived in Kansas City on May 23rd at the airport. Rather than hopping into a taxi, Owen met up with a fan named Trey Lindstrom, and the two would end up spending Owen's final hours together. Basically, I mean, I'm an autograph junkie. I collect autographs, wrestling, and all that other kind of crap. You knew their schedule, where they were coming from, where they were going, and we knew that they were flying in, and I want to say it was from Chicago, and I was up in Kansas City just to do autographs with some friends of mine in Kansas City with no intention of picking Owen up. I figured he had a ride, did whatever, and when he got off the plane, he, he walked right over and he said, hey, Trey, he goes, I'm here. I'm ready to go whenever you are. And I'm like, okay. And I, I mean, I was kind of stunned, actually. I mean, I stopped doing what I was doing and went and got my truck and picked him up and we headed downtown. Meanwhile, at Kemper Arena, longtime referee Jimmy Corderas received his assignments for the evening. His name was attached to the Godfather and Blue Blazer, a match for the Intercontinental Championship, a title that Owen was scheduled to win later that evening. Like normal, went into catering, had lunch, and got, you know found the guys and to find out what was going on in the match, and just went over it with them, make sure that I that I knew everything that I needed to know for the match, and you know it was Owen and Godfather. So to say that I needed to prepare a lot, no, I didn't. Those guys pretty much had it down. And, and, you know, if you think back to the characters, you knew it was going to be a lot more, you know, I hate to put it this way because we were talking about this subject, but it was going to be a lot of ha-ha because mm-hmm. it was the Blue Blazer versus the Godfather. Max Mini was going was going to be the Mini Blazer, uh, and he was going to get involved in the match as well. So it was going to be a lot of fun that obviously, you know, turn tragic. But Owen had bigger concerns than his match or a title victory. In November 1998, in a forgotten segment on Sunday Night Heat from St. Louis, Owen repelled inside Keel Center for a comedic moment where he would be caught by Steve Blackman with a not-so-subtle jab at WCW performer Sting, who had popularized the entrance by repelling inside of arenas across the country. The Blue Blazer descending from the ceiling. Wait a minute, the Blazer... Blazers hit some uh, turbulence. Well, he's 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 looks like he's stuck in that harness. It's, he can't get out. He's stuck. The idiot is stuck in the harness. The Blazer was dropping in, but he got a little hung up. Now he's going back up. Well, what type of a fool comes down and he can't get out of the harness? I'm begging somebody to crank him up as quick as you can, please. And look at him. This is nonsense. In the example of Sting and Owen Hart's segment from St. Louis, the performers were attached by way of a locking carabiner. This was considered the safest way to perform such a stunt. The issue for the WWF was the added time required for Owen Hart to unhook himself, and they wanted the process sped up by using a quick-release snap shackle. Veteran stuntman and former professional wrestler Paul Lazenby. I've done stuff like that. I've done what we call that a descender. When you're hanging from a cable and you're lowered to the ground uh, at speed a lot of the time. And if you've got somebody who's not feeling it, that drastically increases the chances of disaster. So that, that, that kind of put me off a little bit hearing about it. 
When the WWF had done similar stunts in the past, with the likes of The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, they had worked with a rigger named Joe Branham, who had a tremendous reputation. Branham's right-hand man, Randy Beckman, was the one that oversaw the stunt involving Owen Hart back in November of 1998. Branham and Beckman always used the locking carabiners. In Martha Hart's 2002 book, Broken Hearts, it states that on at least three occasions, Branham was asked about using a quick-release snap shackle by the WWF, and he vehemently refused to lower a human with it. Branham was asked for a quote regarding a stunt involving Hart for the May 10th edition of Raw in Orlando, Florida. The WWF said his price of $5,000 was not in the budget. Fearing they would compromise safety, Branham sent Beckman to offer a discounted rate of $2,000. The company stated that the stunt had been written out of the May 10th show, and they did not reach out to the two for the -the over-the-edge stunt. What the WWF ended up doing was using an independent rigger out of Florida named Bobby Talbert, who claimed that he had overseen sting stunts inside WCW. WCW's stunt coordinator, Ellis Edwards, would later dispute that claim, stating that Talbert was merely an assistant on three occasions and overstated his role in the production with Sting. The idea was for Owen Hart to descend from a top Kemper arena with wrestler Max Minnie attached to him by using the quick-release snap shackle to speed up the exit. All I was told was that that's where he was going to make his entrance from. You know, like he was going to descend and in, in comedic fashion, he would be suspended about four feet above the ring, not make it all the way down. And he would kind of be dangling there and kind of detach himself and then kind of do like a pratfall. Trey Lindstrom. He was very apprehensive to do doing this stunt. He had to go through some production meetings and stuff like that. And as soon as that was done, he was like, let's get out of here. He goes, let's go. He goes, I want to go to the gym. Let's go grab some lunch. He goes, I don't want to be around here to talk to Vince and Shane and that company from Orlando that was going to do this. He goes, if I'm not here, they can't do it. We can't do it. And we'll just see what happens. Owen left the arena with Lindstrom in an effort to avoid going through with the rehearsal. He went and worked out at Gold's Gym. We went to Starbucks. We went and ate lunch. Whoever was calling him, he would just ignore. So I don't know who it was, but we were just walking out of Starbucks and Vince called him. When Owen got off the phone, he says, well, I got two choices. I can either be at Kemper Arena in 15 minutes to go over this, or I no longer work for WWF. And I'm like, what do you want me to do, Owen? And he said, well, he goes, I got to support my family. He goes, so let's go. So we went back to Kemper and Owen was still apprehensive, and they went up there and they put, and I didn't get to see it, but Owen told me about it later, that they did a couple trial runs. When Owen finally made his way back to Kemper Arena, the Audible was called to eliminate Max Mini from the entrance, a decision that ended up saving his life. Somehow they strapped, like, fertilizer or grass seed or something it failed a couple times, and after, and he's like, I'm not doing this. I wasn't going to do it. He goes, whatever I need to do, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it, he told me. And then finally, it worked like three more times. So they put him up there. He walked up the scaffolding into the, whatever you call it, up there, Kemper. And they lowered him down in the ring, and everything went well. You would first want to do what's called a hang test every single time at every single arena, which is that, you know, before the crowd's there, before anybody's watching, 
you get in, you harness up the performer and you hang them just a few feet off the ground and they get the feel of the harness and see if there's any pinch points or anything that's going wrong and, and the riggers can check to see if, uh, if all the equipment's behaving properly with, with very low risk. You know, worst case scenario is, you know, something starts pinching and the performer says, put me down or if something goes wrong with the rig, then they drop two or three feet. It's very important you do as soon before the actual performance as possible because things can change. If you, if you rehearse something and you go away and you come back, well, maybe something changed, maybe somebody moved something or maybe something changed in the, in the rig. So uh, I'm hoping that the rehearsals extended to, to that extent. From what we know, there were at least three run-throughs. One using a 250-pound sandbag. One with Bobby Talbert's assistant, Matt Allman. And once when Owen Hart returned to Kemper Arena and went through with one rehearsal. The sentiment conveyed to me by a very qualified individual was that there was nothing wrong with the equipment to his knowledge. Even the choice of equipment, the quick release shackle that was used. If he were to do it, he would not give the performer the option of tripping that. Uh, personally, if I was going to put a quick release on a performer who was doing what Owen was doing, I would put it at the nape of his neck, uh, somewhere where he has to reach back and get it, not somewhere where he can, he can reach up and trip it uh, at the front of his body. His size would have been a total non-issue. The information I've seen would indicate that the shackles were rated for much higher weight than, than Owen's weight. I weighed about 250 pounds when I did the descender I told you about. I probably could have weighed five or six times that much and still not even come close to testing the capacity of the equipment. To my understanding, the equipment uh, all was uh, more than adequate to hold him up. And he wanted me to stand in the corner where I was, take pictures, so he could have the pictures, and his son and wife and Martha could see it. He just he goes, here we go, I'm going up there. He goes, get me some good pictures. Minutes after the pay-per-view went live, Owen Hart ascended to the catwalk of Kemper Arena, disguised in overalls and a baseball cap, and a mentality of just get this over with. Owen would meet Bobby Talbert and local union riggers James Williams and Jim Van Zant high above the arena. Matt Allman was stationed ringside to prepare for Owen's landing. Owen would descend 78 feet, and wrestling's greatest tragedy was occurring on a live pay-per-view broadcast. Oops, uh, let's take you now to an interview conducted earlier tonight uh, with uh, Kevin Kelly and, uh, and the, uh, the Blue Blazer, and uh, we got big problems out here. They had just had a hardcore match. So in order for us to clean the ring properly, you know, they, they had put up a, a pre-taped video of the Blue Blazer with Kevin Kelly on the uh, Jumbotron. At one point, I was kicking out debris. I had my hand on the top rope, and I was working my way towards that corner. You know, I heard something. I, I, I don't want to say that it was anyone's particular, but I heard something, and... In an instant, I felt something brush against the side of my head, and at the same time, the top rope, it's, uh, um, somehow it pulled out of my hand, got pulled out of my hand, and snapped back and hit me in the fingers, like kind of like jamming them. And my first reaction, I thought, was the top rope snapped. And then I looked, and I said, no, the top rope was there. What the heck was that? Is somebody throwing something from the crowd? And... As I, as I turned around, I, I turned and I saw Owen uh, there laying in the corner, like with his head towards the corner, face up, eyes opened. And for, I don't know how long it was, but I, obviously there's confusion because like, what the heck is going on here? As the promo was playing, all of a sudden, I just saw something out of the corner of my eye, you know, was Owen falling. And, you know, you just, it was just like a quick, like within the blink of eye, you just saw something kind of move. And uh, I, just, I just heard this boom. 
Jason King was a young reporter that night with the Kansas City Star. Earlier in the day, he interviewed Paul White and was offered tickets to come back and watch the show as a fan. He was there to witness the fall and suddenly was back to being a reporter. He was flat on his back and uh, it looked like he was trying to sit up. Uh, I've said before, it's kind of like if you're doing 50 sit-ups and you get to like 48 and all of a sudden you, you get about a quarter of the way up and you know your, your muscles tell you you can't go anymore and you just kind of fall back flat. Jeff Merrick was the co-host of Live Audio Wrestling and was scheduled to go on the air several hours after the Over the Edge pay-per-view. Was this legit? Was this a work? Who was this part of the storyline? Nobody really knew and started to make phone calls uh, right away. I think I called Meltzer right away when that happened to try to start to put together what's actually going on here. Um, and then after making subsequent calls, the reality of it sort of dawns on you. All of a sudden, this all came crashing down right in front of me. And I mean, right in front of me. And I just started screaming, get help, get help. It was horrific what I saw. I went over, I called to him a couple of times and there was no response. His eyes were wide open. And then I just like really panicked and started screaming for help, like looking at uh, Mark Aiton was a timekeeper at the time, yelling to Mark, we need help, get somebody out here. And and just, I didn't want to move, obviously, didn't want to touch him, didn't want to move, didn't know what was going on. Because I, at this point, I hadn't put two and two together that, you know, I knew he was supposed to repel, but I didn't, it didn't clue in, if you know what I mean. It's like, you know, I did, you know, that he fell. Ladies and gentlemen, when you're doing live television, uh, a lot of uh, things can happen, and, and sometimes uh, they are not good. Uh, the Blue Blazer, as we know, as Owen Hart was going to make a very spectacular superhero-like entrance from the rafters, and something went terribly wrong here. Uh, certainly, uh, Owen Hart, Blue Blazer, very serious situation here at this point in time is being attended to by the by the uh, by the EMTs. Uh, this is not a part of the uh, entertainment here tonight. We are as this is as real. Uh, as real can be here. I went up to a payphone, called the sports department, the Kansas City Star, and said, guys, I think a guy just died here. A wrestler just died here at Kemper Arena. And they're like, are you serious? And they said, you know, get over to the hospital. They go interview fans and get over to the hospital. I, I went up to the concession stand and I grabbed a handful of, you know, scratchy paper towels you usually get like out of a, you know, gas station bathroom or something. I, they had a big stack of them at the concession stand. And I asked to borrow a pen, and I went around and, like, started writing down notes on those paper towels. You know, in hindsight, things, you start to remember things, and I didn't realize at the time that I had noticed that on his forearm, like the inner part of his forearm, there was, like, a, 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 a huge um, uh, piece of flesh that, that, I guess, either hit the, the rope or something. And it almost, I hate to describe it this way, but it almost looked like somebody took a little ice cream scooper and scooped a little piece of flesh from his forearm, but it wasn't bleeding. Now, you know, in hindsight, thinking about it, going, wow. But at the time, you know, that stuff doesn't clue in. It's just, every, it, now it's just chaos with people filling in the ring and, and you know, um, uh, the doctor performing CPR and stuff like that. Jerry Lawler, specifically, I remember, you know, running to the side of the ring right next to Owen. He didn't get in the ring, but he was, you know, near the apron. And the look on his face... <laughs> Um, it was just panic. Um, and the other thing, I mean, it's kind of weird I get the most about this talk that I never had before, but just, I'm, you know, I'm thinking back to that night. And uh, Jerry Lawler back joining me here. King, I was just reiterating the fans. 
this is not a part of the show. Uh, we're here to entertain and have fun, but this is neither. No, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't look good at all. People were crying. Um, I was crying. Uh, weird. I know a weird thing. I remember walking to the back following the, the stretcher with everything, but I, for some reason, don't know why I did this, whether it was just instinctive for some reason, I, his cape, because they had taken off his cape to work, to do, you know, the CPR and stuff. I walked back with his cape. Oh, wow. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know what, again, not, not even sure why I even bothered to pick it up because I don't know why I even thought to do it, but, you know, walking back with his cape and just standing there as they were wheeling him into the ambulance. And I, I remember I saw the referee, it's, it's Jim Corderas. He was sitting back there, um, you know, he was, uh, I just really felt for him. He was, uh, he was back there, he was smoking a cigarette and he was surrounded, you know, by, I, I don't really know who it was, I mean, no one recognizable, you know, from a TV situation, I'm guessing, you know, uh, just various administrative people with the WWE, people with their traveling party, stagehands, whatever. And, you know, he was shaking and, had his uh kind of his forehead in his hand and he was, he was smoking a cigarette on, on some steps and you know that was one of those times as a reporter especially a young reporter i wanted to go talk to him so bad but i i started kind of walking toward there and uh they saw me with my pen in my hand and, and someone just said no man no, this isn't happening and, and i really did i understood and i, I certainly didn't push it any further than that. I didn't want to be the insensitive media guy. I had his luggage in my truck and the plan was is when he got done wrestling that we were going to drive to St. Louis and he was going to stay. We were going to, I mean, I lived in St. Louis at the time, but we were going to get back St. Louis late and then that next morning we're going to go eat breakfast and go hang out for the day and do some stuff or whatever. He wanted to go see the arch or something else he wanted to go do, but we that was the plan. Owen fell 78 feet at a speed of 45 miles per hour, shattering his left arm and tearing his aorta. He was transferred to the Truman Medical Center, and at 8.12 p.m. local time in Kansas City, Owen Hart was pronounced dead 33 minutes after the fall. The official cause of death was blunt chest trauma and would be ruled an accidental death by medical examiner Dr. Thomas Young. In a heavily criticized decision, the pay-per-view continued. As distasteful as that sounds, I understand it, understanding the, the background on pro wrestling. I just don't understand how the authorities, where you might have a crime scene here, allowed further matches and maybe evidence to get destroyed, um, you know, uh, as, as that situation unfolded. I, I don't know how they didn't look at that right away as a potential crime scene and say, everybody out of the ring, everybody go home. Um, none of the primaries can leave. Until we've questioned everybody, but we might be looking at a crime scene here. I, I still, to this day, haven't seen, heard, or haven't been told a legitimate answer to that question. They sent me to the hospital to get checked out. They said, we just want to make sure you're good. We want to make sure you're okay. We're going to send you to the hospital to get looked at, too. So they, they uh, had uh, John D'Amico drive me over and to get checked out. So they brought me in a room, and they just made sure that everything was cool. I had a little bump on my head, which I didn't know where it came from. I had no idea. 
Um, but they just wanted to make sure everything was cool. And I, you know, I called, uh, she was my fiance at the time, uh, called my wife. And, um, then I, uh, a nurse came in and said, um, uh, you're the one they brought in with the, uh, with, with the gentleman, the wrestler. I said, yes. Well, I just want to, uh, hate to tell you this, but you just wanted to let you know that he passed away. And, uh. Then it was like, I, yeah, I ended up calling my wife back and, you know, it, it, it hit really hard. And then, uh, thing, I got to give a lot of credit to John D'Amico who stayed with me the whole time. I mean, like he had other duties that he was supposed to do, but he just, you know, stayed with me and, and that's how I found out. I found out at the hospital there. You know, you start to think back and you say, okay, who will be able to talk about Owen with some authority? So my first phone call was to Terry Funk. And I talked to Terry and he was watching and he answered the phone and he was livid. Um, he was angry at the whole situation. He was furious at Vince McMahon. I remember that specifically at that part of the conversation. Uh, I remember him saying to me specifically, I would love to come on, but I don't know whether I should because all I would do is talk about how angry I am at Vince McMahon right now. And I don't think that does us, it does you any good or does me any good. The other one, and listen, it's, it's raw. It's, we don't know what's going on. Um, all the emotions are close to the skin. It is pro wrestling. So all of this is under that umbrella. So I do cut this person a lot of slack for this conversation. Uh, but my next phone call was to Wayne Ferris, honky tonk man. And I remember talking to Wayne about it and he said, uh, don't do it. I said, don't do what? He said, don't report this on your show. This is a work. You guys are getting worked. You're getting embarrassed. If you want to go embarrass yourself tonight, talk about how Owen Hart's dead. But this is a work, boys, and you're getting worked hard right now. Remember that conversation? Listen, we all didn't know what was happening at that time. So again, I cut him a lot of slack. Um, but that was one conversation, uh, that I'll never forget. Wayne Ferris trying to convince me that Owen passing at Kemper Arena was a work and wasn't, you know, actually something that, you know, was unfolding in front of our eyes. Back in Calgary, the story was bigger than the city, with Owen Hart's death leading newscasts across the country. Heath McCoy was an intern at the time with the Calgary Herald and would later write Pain and Passion, the history of Stampede Wrestling. You know, I very badly wanted to cover this story. This was obviously right up my alley, and uh, it was a big deal for me personally. I, I got a speed ticket driving to the Hart House that day. So, uh, you know, I was, I, I was there first thing in the morning, and, uh, and as the day progressed, media from all around North America started showing up. I started just flocking in. I'm pretty sure I recall CNN showing up, and I believe somebody from Entertainment Tonight, and just a bunch of media outlets. I know everybody from Larry King Live to the National Enquirer contacted the Hart family. Everybody was on it. I mean, this was one of those bigger-than-just-pro-wrestling stories. Like, we weren't the only ones. Like, of course, you know, Meltzer is all over it as, you know, like the preeminent wrestling journalist in the world. Um, but also, you know, not just local media in Kansas City, but also national media in the United States, national media in Canada, uh, were all over it. Some with a sensitivity that the story deserved, others not so much, and just wanted to treat it like, oh, a clown from the circus died, waka waka, uh, which was really distasteful. I went back to the newspaper from the hospital and began to write. And myself and another guy who had gone to get quotes, you know, we sat down and, and banged out a story. We had to try to call uh, Owen's parents, 
I believe our other guy, if I remember, was the one that got a hold of them. They gave just a brief quote or statement, and and we wrote that. And what I remember the most is driving home that night, you know, around midnight, and thinking, you know, pretty much just witnessed a man die in a wrestling ring. And it's just crazy to think about it. And all these years later, I can still remember like that image I told you of him sitting there trying to do that, that sit up and trying to get up, and and not been able to do it. I remember talking to and meeting pretty much all the Hart kids, uh, including the grandkids, you know, Natty Neidhart, Teddy Hart, uh, Harry Smith, the son of Davy Boy. They're all teenagers at the time, and they were all on the scene. They were all there. T.J. Wilson was hanging around. Um, I definitely remember talking to the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. I'm pretty sure Jim the Anvil Neidhart was present and wouldn't talk to me, if I recall. I think he growled at me instead. Uh, but I spoke with Bruce, Keith, Ross, Smith, you know, all the sisters. Some really condemned Vince McMahon. and and others quite pointedly did not. And you could see a bit of a rift forming in the family already right there. Uh, Davy Boy Smith, and I'm pretty sure his wife Diana as well, uh, emphasized that nobody knew Owen's condition after the fall and the show had to go on. And then, you know, but everybody was just confused and, and hurting. For the World Wrestling Federation, it was on to St. Louis, where the company would hold a two-hour tribute show in Owen's memory filled with reflections from his colleagues. The nicest funniest person I think that that I've ever met and he loved his family and I think that uh, they should know that he talked about them warmly and with love and affection and I, th I think there's probably a special place in heaven for Owen Hart to this day I'm not sure I don't remember how I got to St. Louis it's funny because uh, I remember being in the hotel room I remember um you know, turning on the TV and of course all the news outlets were, um, you know, covering it. And, and, but I don't, I don't know if we drove. I don't know if it was the bus. I don't know if John drove me to, to, to St. Louis. Did we fly from Casey? I, it's a blur to this day. I still don't remember how I got from Kansas City to St. Louis. I couldn't talk. I couldn't see. The burn overwhelmed me. My heart is heavy. This is why. Jeff Jarrett and Road Dog and Billy Gunn asked me to take them down to the, I think it was the Keel Center at the time. And so I drove them down there and it was just, nobody said anything in the in my truck the whole drive down. It was about a 15, 20 minute drive. First person I ran into uh, was The Undertaker. And he just said, you know, again, gracious and, and just saying, if you need anything at all, you let me know. And uh, uh, Triple H, the same thing. Then I, then I ran into to Jerry Lawler. And that's when it got uh, really heavy because he sat me down and he talked to me. And he, uh, he said he saw the last about 15 or 20 feet of Owen's fall. And he said, as he... Caught Owen out of, you know, out of the corner of his eye, said his first reaction is, Oh my God, he's going to land on the referee. And that's when, you know, you know, not to see, and again, I don't want to make this about me, but that's when it really hit that I could have been, uh, you know, another part of this tragedy. At the time, it was, the Undertaker's friend, but bodyguard, whatever, but he was head of security for WWF. And Shane 
and Stephanie were with them and they came over and said that they understood that I had Owen's suitcase with all of his belongings and his parking pass and all that. And I'm like, yep. And he goes, well, we need you to hand that over to us and we're going to ask you to leave the building. And I'm like, I can't go to the event or whatever. He goes, tonight, we don't want you in the building. We don't want you to attend the event. Oh, I'm sure that they knew that there was some stuff to come up or some stuff things were going to be said or asked or with a lawsuit or something like that. Then then after that, uh, they had the big uh, talent had the meeting with Vince. And that was interesting. That was very interesting because you have a man who never shows his emotions, you know, um, always want to look like he's in control, you know. I think I think the biggest takeaway for me was seeing the boss vulnerable like that and seeing that he was he was emotionally hurt like the rest of us. He was one of us on that day. You know, mourning and grieving a loss. But it was comforting to see that he was one of us. I think about integrity because in this business it's cold, it's callous. It's selfish, it's self-serving, it's unrealistic, it's a fantasy world, but Owen was real. I'm going to do my best to let their, to let Oge and Athena really know what a great man you, you were, Owen. That's it, I can't battle Believe it or not, I have somewhere on VHS tape at home the the Monday, the Monday Raw. Uh, still haven't seen it. Hart left behind his 32-year-old wife Martha and children Oge and Athena just days before the family was set to move into their dream home. Martha was now thrust into the public spotlight while attempting to figure out what happened in Kansas City and deal with the week-long planning of Owen's funeral to take place on Monday, May 31st. Premier Ralph Klein was there, so was the mayor. And Owen Hart's family, they arrived in eight white limousines, many of them wrestlers themselves or married to wrestlers. And it was just a, a media circus because there was this huge procession of, uh, you know, WWE stars and even a few WCW stars as well that came in for the funeral. You, you had the entire McMahon family, um, The Rock, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Triple H in China, Gorilla Monsoon, Hulk Hogan and Mick Foley were, were on hand. Everybody came together that day, and I know it's a cliche about it being your road family. It, on that day, it truly was. Everybody, everybody was there for for Owen and his family. It did help. It, it really did help in the healing process. I was not inside the church actually, but I just remember, you know, we could hear it. Uh, Brett and Ross uh, both delivered eulogies, really nice eulogies, and, the, and then Martha delivered hers, and and it was very emotional and full of love towards Owen. But she also threw down the gauntlet and declared war with the WWE. I loved him. I loved him. I loved him, and I miss him because he was everything to me. He was my whole life. I'm a very forgiving person, and I'm not bitter or angry, but there will be a day of reckoning, and this is my final promise to Owen, and I won't let him down. In the weeks that followed, the media storm did not let up. It was inevitable that a lawsuit was coming, and in the next month, Martha launched a civil suit against Vince McMahon and 12 other defendants, including the manufacturers of Owen's harness and clip, along with the city of Kansas City. 
The suit cited wrongful death due to negligence, equipment failure, and conscious disregard for human safety among the allegations. Martha also listed Owen's brother Brett and parents Stu and Helen as plaintiffs, a decision that Martha would ultimately regret and led to a civil war inside the Hart family. The family really was torn apart by this lawsuit, and we in the Calgary, all the media, but we in the Calgary media had front row seat watching this tragedy unfold. And yet some of the hard kids, notably Bruce, Ellie, and Diana, wanted to settle with McMahon. And it's true that they did have personal interest. Um, Ellie and Diana didn't want their husbands, David Boy Smith and Jim the Anvil Nightheart, they didn't want their husbands burning bridges with the WWE. Bruce Hart had launched a revamped Stampede Wrestling, and so he wanted this to become the farm team for the WWE. Bruce, Ellie, and Diana, Diana also argued that this lawsuit was destroying their aging, ailing parents, and they accused Brett of, you know, of not taking that into account and being driven by, by his grudge against McMahon. And on a couple of occasions, there were full-blown domestic disputes within the hard house um, that you know various media attended were, were called to, you know, with with the children of Stu and Helen literally at each other's throats, and this tore Stu and Helen apart. Briefly, at first, they just want to know: um, Did I know anything about the rigging, or did I know anything about? Uh, and which I didn't. And uh, um, the other one was: Did I witness any of the uh, rehearsals that day? which I didn't. So because I didn't, that kind of uh, thankfully left me out of it. So I was, you know, not called to testify or anything like that. Because of all this dissension and everything that was going on, at one point, Martha's lawyers put together an allocation agreement, basically saying that the kids would get a portion of the money won from the lawsuit. And I believe Bruce, Ellie, and Diana refused to sign it. And Ellie actually faxed the agreement to McCann's lawyers which, you know, Martha lost her mind about it. She rightfully, rightfully viewed this as a betrayal, and it, you know, it could have derailed her lawsuit. That, that was the toughest thing to see, is, is to watch family members turn on other family members, specifically when, you know, jobs are dangled and money is dangled. And that's, that, that, to me, was the most distasteful part of, of what happened with the Hart family afterwards. Watching, watching family members turn on each other is always ugly. And some of the Hart kids also felt their parents were being disrespected and bullied by Martha's lawyers, whom Stu was actually helping to pay for. So there was a lot of resentment there. And then I did get to interview Martha over the years. And, you know, she can be very controlling and difficult. And, you know, and she did not show a lot of respect for the Hart family. But, you know, one can see her perspective as well. She was justified in this lawsuit. She's trying to get justice for her husband. And she's feeling thwarted by the family. You know, it's not this black and white situation. Everybody had their own motives and everybody had their own agendas. And everybody was legitimately grieving over the loss of Owen and trying to do what they thought was right. And everybody was in turmoil, and it was it was heartbreaking to see. I talked one time to a lawyer from, I think he was Cal from Calgary or wherever he was from. I don't know. I talked to him one time, and they said that it went to trial that I would be subpoenaed to be a witness for Owen and his family. And I'm like, what you know, whatever you need. I got a couple letters from the lawyer with a, you know possible trial dates and what I needed to do in terms of how the WWE looks for the media it's worth noting that they they countersued Martha for breach of contract because she launched her lawsuit from Missouri while Owen's contract stated that any litigation taken against the company had to be launched in Connecticut where punitive damages are not rewarded so again this did not make the company look too saintly or even remorseful Vince McMahon did not go into hiding Instead, opting to sit down with off-the-records Michael Landsberg, a national talk show host in Canada on TSN, 
which also happened to be the Canadian rights holder of Raw in 1999. What you do, your business, is entertainment, and you allowed the entertainment to continue with the blood of Owen Hart still in the ring. I'm not sure that's not disrespectful to Owen Hart and his family. It, it may be, from your standpoint. Uh, again, it was something that we did not think about. We, no one thought about stopping the show. Jeff Merrick worked as one of the writers on the shows, traveling to Stamford, Connecticut, where Landsberg would sit down with not only Vince McMahon, but also wife Linda and children Shane and Stephanie. Now, we do understand that this was very much damage control and they wanted to put forward a family face and a more sensitive face, so it didn't serve them well to react negatively to what could be perceived as hostile questions. The one thing that I will always say about Michael Landsberg is when he goes into these situations, he is fearless. Like, Michael has this ability to be able to ask a question in a compelling way even though it's a confrontational question, but couch it in a way that it forces you to give a better answer than you normally would. And it's a unique skill as a broadcaster. Jim Ross came on and very eloquently, and I think very appropriately, told the audience watching at home via pay-per-view that Owen Hart had died. Yet the people in Kansas City, Missouri, at the arena, didn't know that. Why didn't you tell them? Um, well, my guts were telling me, don't announce to the live audience that Owen passed away. Uh, and I, I don't exactly know why, really, other than the fact that uh, I don't know that it's necessarily fair for uh, someone who was there uh, to have that announcement. Uh, they were going to find out for sure, as everyone else in the world found out in due time. They were as honest as they could be, I think, in that situation. Like, again, it's, it's pro wrestling, so everything is, okay, what, what is in it for them? And what's in it for them is they need to change the face of that organization. And I'm not saying that they weren't sensitive to the passing of a significant performer on their roster, someone that was part of their family. Um, I don't think that they're that heartless. I don't. But part of this motivation was we need to put a family face on this, and we're a family too. That's why it was all the family members um, that were there. Um, but I will say, and I always say this about Michael, whether it was the, the one-on-ones before, you know, with Vince, uh, with Taker, with any of the wrestlers, Mick, like all the guys that came through, Austin, Rock, all the guys that came through, and gals, like he was fearless with his questioning. So what do you feel like there in, in the funeral home, in that setting? Uh, you're surrounded by the hearts who obviously are, are feeling a lot of anger towards you. You're clearly there in enemy territory. Give the viewer an idea what it felt like to be Vince McMahon in that situation? Well, firstly, um, it was my duty to be there. Uh, and and I wanted to be there. Um, whether I was persona non grata or not, Owen's uh, widow Martha asked me to be there. I didn't care about me in terms of what people are were thinking about me. I could care less at that time. And I remember kicking myself on the plane as you know and it might be perceived as a gotcha question and it probably is i remember flying back thinking to myself damn i missed the best question and the question is this um to vince mcmahon if that wasn't owen hart but if that was shane mcmahon would you have stopped the show now there's no real good answer to that because if you say yes then you're heartless because, well, hang on, you didn't stop the show for Owen, but you stopped the show for Shane. And if you say no, then you come off as a heartless father. 
maybe the only way you can wiggle out of the question is to say, it wouldn't be my decision at that point because I'm too emotional, so I'll hand that decision to someone else. And that might be the political way to wiggle out of that question. But I can still remember uh, the next day saying, that was my feeling. That's a really good question that I didn't, that I didn't arm Landsberg with. Martha Hart would ultimately settle with the World Wrestling Federation in November 2000, taking a portion of the settlement to launch the Owen Hart Foundation while divorcing herself and her children from the Hart family. I, felt, I think she felt like it was she was kind of beating her head against the wall because the family didn't have any unity. I think she knew the WWE could have dragged this out forever, so ultimately she did settle. I believe the Hart family received a reported $18 million, 10 to Martha, three to each of Owen's children, and $1 million each to Stu and Helen. And so Martha went public with this in November of 2000. And here's the thing. When she did so, she came out with this really vicious, mean-spirited stance against the Hart family. She said, um, some quotes, I am removing myself and my children from the family. I carry the last name, but I'm not related to them anymore. Uh, She said that she described Owen as a white sheep and a black sheep family. And it was a real attack, a real hurtful attack to the family. And it's a stance she's, you know, she's apparently upheld all these years, the last I checked. You know, eventually, this kind of hard, mean stance that Martha took ended her alliance with Brett. And today, you know, he publicly calls out Martha for burying Owen, Owen's legacy. T- to be fair, she's also built up his legacy in, in the respectable image that she prefers with her Owen Hart Foundation, which I believe they raise money for financially struggling families. And, they've, and she's done a lot of great work with the Owen Hart Foundation. So she's done, she's done a lot of great work and a lot of good in his name. But it's, it's, you know, but it's through the WWE where he can be really celebrated the way he deserves to be. And, you know, and she won't allow for it, which has created a lot of friction between her and Brett, who's called her out, especially in the last couple of years. Um, and he, of course, was her greatest ally when Owen died. Despite a nasty war among the Hart family, a daunting lawsuit, horrific memories of his final hours, it is the man, Owen Hart, that remains unblemished among those that knew him. He was a breath of fresh air in a locker room during a time when uh, things got a little bit crazy, you know, um, politically, you know, the backstage stuff and all this stuff. You, You hear the stories of all that stuff going on. Let's face it, he was really good. He was probably... No offense to Brett, but he was probably the best heart as far as in-ring-wise. To the world, Owen Hart's legacy is his tragic end. To wrestling fans, to, to you and I, we know there's so much more to his legacy. He was an amazing wrestler. He was arguably the, the greatest of the wrestler in the Hart family. When we would get back to the hotel when we were with Owen, and before the match, he would call Martha, hey, I'm up. And then at night when he got done working, he called her every night. I mean, he was the most honest, pure wrestler that that I ever met. Whether it's speaking to a journalism class or, you know, where a kid might ask me, what's the most memorable thing you've ever covered? Or whether it's how do you write about something on a tight deadline or, or whatever. I always use that night as an example, but I, I hate that. I hate that it, in a way, I hate that I had to be there for it, but I'm glad I was to kind of chronicle it the right way. Selfishly, it was one of the biggest days of my career. And when I, I look back at anything that I've ever done, whether it's, you know, Hockey Night in Canada, Sportsnet, Hockey Central, Olympics, but I, I also look back at that night at Kemper Arena as one of the, one of the, the biggest moments of my career. Selfishly, selfishly. Writing about it helped. 
the more you talk about it in, in, in this kind of setting, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it helps. All, all, all of it helps a little bit. You know what I mean? Whether I'm, I'm 100% over it, obviously I won't be. But um, it's just it, it, like anything else. It becomes easier to kind of deal with, you know. For years, I would, I would, when I would watch wrestling, I would watch him or see him in the ring wrestling. I hope he's doing well. And, you know, I'm glad I didn't talk to him that night. I'm glad that I, I'm just glad he was able to grieve without a bunch of media in his face. You know, or, or I don't know if grieve is the right word, but just, just to handle that situation and, and, uh, without a bunch of people sticking mics in his face. That was one time I was kind of glad I didn't get an interview because I didn't want to do that to him. Owen was a regular, everyday prankster who found himself thrown into the family business that he just so happened to thrive at. He took to the industry like few have, earning accolades in Europe, Mexico, and Japan before his rise in the World Wrestling Federation. He only had 34 years to show the world his talents, but what he left was a lifetime of memories and a legacy that reaches far beyond the date of May 23rd, 1999. Personally, anything that I do, I'm, I'm proud to say that I can let my children watch or any other fans. Uh, they might not always agree with the dirty tactics that I do, but I, I make sure what I do as a professional athlete in and outside the ring is acceptable uh, to my family and my friends, and I want to uphold the, uh, the heart reputation as uh, being a true professional. 